Steve Ebenezer Vines. Good morning. Why did you play a town called Malice? I don't know. I'm, start, I'm starting to do the second nature without even thinking. People are like, did you mean something by that? Yes. Re- listeners, read nothing into I that. I didn't mean something honestly. by that. Yeah, I'll tell you what, there's lots of things to talk about this uh, week, but certainly in the news today, it's amazing the length the top boys in the United States will go to to get a good cigar. I know, I know. I mean, what you're talking about in that subtle way of yours <laughs> is this this extraordinary story. I mean, this is in fact the last big vestige of the Cold War being overcome, which is the resumption or the putative re- resumption of relations between the United States and Cuba, something that clearly should have happened at least two decades ago, but never mind. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it is an extraordinary story. Um, we have to be a bit cautious about that story because um, you know that what happens nowadays in, in the Senate and in Congress, particularly when it has a, or will have when the new um, legislature comes in, will have a hostile majority to the president. But yeah. set that aside. I mean, this is one of those great moments in history that, that you say after it happened, well... Why on earth wasn't Cuba's nearest neighbour um, separated, I think, by a stretch of sea, no more than, what is it, 70 miles? It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty close from Florida. Uh, why has it taken so long? Well, we know the reasons why it's taken so long, but, you know, it started... It's funny, it started, as many as these things do, with a prisoner exchange. So you have the Americans getting back one... Sorry, the Americans get back one, the Cubans get back three. Yeah. A one-for-three offer. <laughs> and um, I can think of other um, resumption of um, diplomatic relations that's happened like that. Um, this isn't the first one. They're now talking of a much more widespread deal. I think for President Obama, this will be an important... In, in part of his legacy, and you know how presidents are always very preoccupied by their legacy. Yeah. It'll be a very important um, step for him, assuming everything goes through, but you never know. The legislature in the United States is stuffed full of a bunch of crazies who are just dedicated to making sure that the president doesn't get anything through. It's becoming more and more like that, isn't it? Uh, but, you know, obviously, um, I don't know how crazy they want to be on this. I mean, they, they, they can't actually stop the resumption of relations, but they can, bizarrely, they could actually maintain the embargo on Cuba because that's a piece of legislation that originally emanated from, from the uh, legislature. Mm. So you may have this bizarre situation where the two countries have resumed diplomatic relations, but one country has an embargo against the other. Well, I'm wondering... I mean, that's about as crazy as it can get. I'm wondering if when they do this, somewhere down the line, they'll sign some pieces of paper, very legal and everything, then somewhere down the line, Cuba will say, oh, no, 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 we didn't mean that bit. Or, yes, that seems to be the new dispensation (laughs) if you're sitting in Hong Kong. Now, we have a new, uh, and he must be, he's going to be a historical figure, a new figure um, who's making constitutional history in the shape of Raymond Tam. Who knew? In fact, who knew that Raymond Tam existed? But he apparently is the Secretary for Constitutional Affairs. And according to him, there's a bit of the Joint Declaration, Article 3, if you want to be pedantic, which only China signed, (laughs) not Britain. He said, China proposed that, and it's got nothing to do with Britain. Do you know... I don't want to say anything, and I'm going to say this very quietly because it may upset the horses, but somewhere in the word joint declaration, the word joint has a meaning. 
it possibly means both parties are part of the same declaration. But his interpretation is China put declarations in the joint declaration of its own that don't somehow form part of the joint, joint declaration. declaration. <laughs> he, he, he also announced that, that there will be... Um, uh, that there will be rain in Saudi Arabia throughout the year and many other new developments that nobody in the world had heard about. But never mind, you know, he's, he's reinterpreting the whole history of how treaties are, are connected. No doubt he's going to be taken on as an advisor to the German government who can now say, well, that Treaty of Versailles, the bit we signed was the bit that didn't include the armistice, therefore we are still at war yeah. with Britain. You know, you know, the wheels <laughs> are one way or another coming off. I remember maybe over a year ago, you and I chatting, and I stupidly said, oh, do you reckon the whole democracy thing is the biggest lie China ever told, and you wouldn't have heard about it? But you know what? <laughs> well, yes. I, I, I mean... It, it is interesting that the the denial of treaties by China isn't actually a new thing. Really? You know, the whole um, history, and I've just been reading, just by sheer coincidence, Philip Bowring's excellent book about his ancestor, Sir John Bowring, who's mm -hmm. one of the early governors of Hong Kong. And this is the, the early period of the British colony in Hong Kong, when you had these admittedly and, and blatantly unequal treaties, the Treaty of Nanjing, the Treaty of Tianjin, etc. And, and the Chinese side, this is well before our good friends from the Communist Party took office, basically said, yes, we've signed those treaties, but they don't apply to us. So there is a certain consistency. Previous. There's a bit of previous in this, and there is a certain consistency in attitudes towards international treaties, i.e. that if you don't like them, you deny that you're any part of them. The problem with the joint declaration and i know it's vulgar to to, to mention this yet again is that the, the world has changed a bit and this is a treaty registered at the united nations so it's it's not only a treaty between the two states it's a treaty that has the stamp of approval of the entire international community it brings up a very good point though because often countries ceremonially <laughs> sign, write, etc, etc. But it does bring up the reality that this stuff is not much worth the paper that it's written on. Well, you may well say that, and in fact many people do, and I suppose, you know, in fact this whole issue is slightly absurd because it's based on an, a, a completely ludicrous premise that somehow Britain wants to intervene in the internal affairs of Hong Kong. I mean, the Cameron government is as interested in Hong Kong as it is about the sugar crop in Guatemala. And that's a, an interesting thing, because they don't have one. But, so, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, really, Britain, there are parliamentarians in, in the House of Commons particularly. Oh, no, there's some in the House of Lords. There's yeah. a fellow called Lord Patton, who apparently has an interest in this, um, who, who do think that because there is a treaty and there is a monitoring role implicit in that treaty, it should be carried out. But the idea that Britain's going to flood uh, Hong Kong with advisers and people telling the protesters or the Hong Kong government what to do is just patently absurd. Well, right now, what can the Brits do? It does sound like a ceremonial well, thing. It, you know, all they can do is what this parliamentary committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, is trying to do, is say, look, you know, we, we can't actually change things as they are going on, but we can investigate and we can throw some light on them. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what newspapers do when they report. That's what the United Nations um, Human Rights Committee does when it reports on the affairs of other countries. It's a way of monitoring 
issues that are of public interest. We've had a few crackers that have really made people raise their eyebrows recently. We've had this thing about it being void or fulfilled its use, etc. Yeah. We've well, had... there's been a time limit. <laughs> oh, no, I know. Which is not the time limit stated in the Joint Declaration. We've had the Brit uh, delegation being told, no, you can't come in. These are people who don't need visas being denied visas that they don't Bingo, need because it was yes. the wrong timing, because of Occupy yeah. Central. And talking of that, there was some quotes in the news the other day about hunting down... Well, Hunting now this, down. This is really the people behind Occupy is, Central. Well, and you know, who, and you know who made that quote. Just in case there's anybody remembers that Hong Kong has a chief of police. This is Andy Jung, who who, who used those precise words. Uh, this is the commissioner of police, who in the seventy whatever it is days of the occupations, literally disappeared from sight. His view was, I'm the commissioner of chief, uh, I'm the commissioner of police, therefore I should be, oh, that's right, invisible. Now, it might have been put to him that he's such an unpleasant and unpopular figure that, in fact, the best strategy was to keep out of the line. You just go and wait over there. But normally, and if you look at previous commissioners of police, they have taken it as their role when there's major civil unrest to be in the front line not in the back office while all this is going on. Anyway, that's a bit by the way. Well, by, there's another guy who's been accused of that as well. There is, but, but a lot of people have said that was deliberate because if Mr 689 had appeared on the streets, it always caused much more problem and the police said we're busy enough dealing with the occupations. But, but just coming back to that statement, there was, there was Andy Jung making his first press conference after disappearing. You saw in Legco on Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken, which possibly is yesterday, <laughs> uh, legislators from the DAB talking about, you know, we're on a roll now, we've defeated the umbrella movement, who can we find to prosecute? Now, you know, a lot of people who've been involved in politics say the way to move forward after a pretty cataclysmic event, and this was mm. a cataclysmic event, is one of two ways. Either you keep looking back and the side that, that has emerged seemingly with the upper hand uses that upper hand not to tackle any of the fundamental problems but to use it to punish those who have been in opposition and just maintains a policy of doing exactly the same thing but thinks that somehow they'll get away with it if they can put enough people in prison, they can marginalise enough of the protest leaders. Well, you know, that has never ever worked, ever. And, boy, they're very brave to try it again in Hong Kong. Congratulations, boys. I just couldn't believe those words, though. Maybe something's lost in translation. Hunting down? Well, no, firstly, no, I think they're not it. hiding. You know exactly they, where they, these guys they, live. They well, you know, the other thing is, because you have to frame the whole protest in terms of being conspiracy and, and, and the idea that the whole problem of constitutional development in Hong Kong mm. is merely one of law and order is, if you believe that, you, you'll believe all sorts of things. But the idea that, that all these hundreds of thousands of people who protested were somehow directed by a black hand, almost certainly a foreign one. Absolutely. I think it was you, actually. I, think, I thought it was you. <laughs> oh, God, well, it was somebody. I saw, I saw a bloke hanging around giving out instructions because, honestly, none of those people would have appeared if a foreigner hadn't told them to do so. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and that was I saw that while all the pigs were flying across the um, street at the time. You know, honestly, if you if your whole narrative of what happened on the streets of Hong Kong in the last couple of months is there was a black hand manipulating and directing affairs, you 
yet again express your contempt, uh, contempt for the people of Hong Kong because you, these people simply do not believe that Hong Kong people are smart enough, creative enough, determined enough to do what they did. You know, it's a kind of extraordinarily dismissive attitude. And it smacks up a huge loss of face. Yeah. Essentially, bring it down to those terms. I'll tell you who's been getting some good uh, compliments out of all of this. Um, in the transport scene, the tram boys. People are saying they haven't whinged, they haven't complained about lack of business, they've carried on as best they can, and they haven't got some bogus injunction to sort out their, their problems. Yeah. Yeah, that's I true. hadn't thought of that, but, you know, yeah. good and, French and, company. And they're foreign owned. <laughs> <laughs> Must blame the tram boys. Uh, sorry, are we, are we sitting here saying something nice about the French? <laughs> no, we just I, I, I haven't travelled all this way today to be nice about the French, I'm sorry. Well, uh, you know, they <laughs> must have... It's not in the DNA. They must have taken it on the nose as well. <laughs> well, they obviously did. But by they all accounts. Losses. Yeah. I mean, part of the service did manage to keep running but part of it didn't yeah it was a problem i mean you you know to say that this isn't a law and order problem is not to deny that there was civil disturbance because obviously there was but to to reduce this extraordinary movement to just saying oh well it's all to do with policing uh, you know if we can get policing sorted out we can get the whole thing sorted out that just ain't gonna happen I've got an email from Richard. Thanks very much for bailing us out. He says, Headline news, manhunt in Hong Kong. Latest blockbuster from the Hong Kong public theatre of drama. Subtitles include, Who were the instigators? Within three months, will be very arresting. And then he actually writes, What a lot of cobblers underneath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, and then uh, just to... to because if anybody doesn't feel that there has been a, a, a sufficient conspiracy theory attached to all of this, rather than a proper estimation of, of what happened during the Occupy movements. Um, you had Chen Zhuo, who, who many people had forgotten, but he's been brought back to life on the life support system, no doubt. He, he was one of the main people uh, dealing with Hong Kong affairs from the mainland. Right. Who, 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 out of the blue, said, oh, I've got a figure for how much money was given by, by the... It was given by, according to Chen Zhuo, so it must be true. Yep. Uh, the figure, I believe, is $30 million... Um, and apparently it was given by Americans through a university in Hong Kong. Gosh, that's highly specific. And it's 20 to 11 this Thursday, still in with Steve Vines. Just going to go back in the news, I think it was yesterday or the day before. The government's proposed a voluntary health insurance scheme to encourage more people to use private hospitals. It launched a three-month-long consultation exercise on the proposed scheme. It goes on. They reckon uh, one and a half million people will probably sign up for, for no reason whatsoever. My immediate gut reaction was MPF. Well, it, it's interesting you say MPF because there's a golden thread that links the MPF and this new so-called public insurance or health insurance scheme, which is that the people who almost certainly will benefit most from this are the finance and insurance companies Big time. Who, are, who are behind it. I mean, the MPF was Christmas come very, very early for all these people running these useless funds that uh, so many poor Hong Kong people, in fact, the majority of Hong Kong's working population, have been forced to put money into and, in real terms, have lost money from. Now, the insurance scheme, it, that medical insurance scheme, in many ways is even more mad. Go on, because, you know, most times when you look at medical insurance, you think, from a public perspective, public health perspective, you say, oh, what can we do to increase the health of the population and give better protection to 
people who are ill. The government's perspective of this is not that. They start from entirely the other end of the strata. <laughs> and they say, what can we do to get less people using the public health system as it is? Uh, wait a minute. Surely no. your main objective is, and the key word here could possibly be health. And public. So, and public. Maybe both of those words somehow apply. So you have a scheme that is offering too little obviously too late mm. and too too cockamamie to make any sense i mean people i think will indeed join the scheme because the, the the main reason for it will be that they'll get a tax break you know you you contribute to health insurance and you can take that off your taxes that will obviously appeal to people but you look at what they're actually doing and you think who will join it because the only Who people can join with it. a re- well, anybody can join it, but the only people with a real incentive to join it will be older people and people with ailments. Because the whole point of this scheme is that most private insurers won't take on elderly people except for with very high premiums, and they make so many exclusions. So if you have a pre-existing condition or what have you, hmm. the scheme won't cover it. So. So what you'll have is all these people who can't get into private health schemes, I'm quite sure, will want to join it, which will mean that the scheme will be burdened in a lopsided way. That's number one. Okay. Number two, instead of uh, having a major effort to improve the public health facility, which in Hong Kong really isn't bad, the problem with it is, is that it's overcrowded. And the other problem with it is, is that, you know, a lot of people don't really like if they're confined to hospital for long periods, being forced to be stuck in these big wards. I think it's the in and out stuff that, that really becomes a problem. I remember a nurse telling me once we talked about this, it's people going down there just to get their aspirins and well, stuff that, to the A&E. That, well, that, there's, that's obviously an abuse of the system. But, but it's, what, it's what the people who do it think is normal. Again, a lot of older people. I know, so yeah. what you need to do is tackle that sort of thing and devote much more of the government's attention to preventative measures because after all you know from everybody's point of view isn't it better to stop things before they develop into major oh, yeah. illnesses rather than say oh we only want to know about you when you're when you're about to be you know really bad yeah i was going to say something worse but <laughs> we're on public radio and one shouldn't do that so i mean you know this is a sort of almost almost aggressively stupid way of dealing with an enormous issue because i think everybody in hong kong at some time or other thinks about it even people in in the peak of health must be sensible enough to know that that won't go on forever but usually people take the attitude as they do to many things in life look i'm perfectly all right at the moment i'll pay attention to this when i need to whereas if you have a government that actually plans strategically for the benefit of the population. Goodness knows, I don't think this government should be expected to do that. But, you know, if you had a normal government, they would say, what do we need to do to make sure that the greatest number of people can remain in the best state of health for the longest period? Hmm. Instead, they spend all their time thinking up a scheme of what can I do to make the big finance and insurance companies happy? What can I do to... um, stop people using the public health system oh and by the way what can i do to uh fulfill a pledge that was given by the chief executive people forget that the chief executive actually gave pledges but you know 
that doesn't really matter, I suppose. That that was just a joke. I just threw that in. Yeah, pledges not just for polishing your furniture. <laughs> Other brands are available. Terms and conditions apply. I've got an email from Scott here who says there were two major problems with the scheme to enrich CY Lung supporters, i.e. is political corruption. He says, one, it's a simple sh shell scheme to apply a new tax on the middle class collected by private institutions. So, so it's tax farming, <coughs> a la Obamacare, says Scott. Any tax farming scheme will always be game to increase profit, which means any so-called gain in efficiency will quickly be gamed off. The insurance companies have very little political offset to counteract their lobbying power and ability to corrupt the bureaucracy. The system will go rotten even faster than in the USA, he goes on. But that's enough to be going on with. <laughs> but that's enough. Well, I mean, I, I'd have to say that the well, one thing that I, I think is mistaken there is this isn't compulsory. So, you know, if you don't choose to sign up to one of these policies, um, you don't have to join the racket. But, I, you know, I've sort of passed the first flush of youth. So I do happen to know a lot of people, a shameful omission yet again, who, who are more concerned about health in old age than perhaps they would have been at another stage in their life. Yeah. And there's a lot of people living in Hong Kong who are extremely worried about provision of health care as they get older and as inevitably they need to call on medical services more than they do when they're younger. So, I mean, is there a need for a scheme that, that, that deals with this? Would it be reasonable to have a scheme that people who have some money would contribute to the answer to all of that is yes is this that scheme no will there be so much paperwork and bureaucracy involved in getting it well if you've ever dealt with a, de a government department the answer answers itself in triplicate yeah in triplicate after putting uh, it out to tender after putting it out to tender <laughs> and would you mind queuing i'll tell you what is it my imagination? You, you drive around Central much? Right? I do. Is I it do. my imagination, or is the traffic just as bad as it's been throughout Occupy? Like massive eastern corridor jams. Now, can I give you the official government response to this? <laughs> Go on. Everything is worse since Occupy. Everything. Cups of tea, traffic, pollution. We're going to hunt you down. We're going to hunt you down. Like Everything dog. is worse. But it is interesting, you know, all these all these weaselly companies that are in problems. Um, instead of saying, oh, we've actually had this problem, we go, oh, well, we were perfectly all right until Occupy. And the government, I'm sure, will, will find X, you know, they have a real problem because tourist arrivals increased while Occupy was on. Exports went up while Occupy was on. All their dire... Life went and, on. And hysterical warnings of economic consequences weren't realised. And so they've now got to um, uh, play a new story out, and the new stories are, oh, well, it may not have been bad at the time, but you wait. But on pollution, you don't have to wait. And on traffic congestion, you don't have to wait. It's just gone back to where it was. Yeah. It, that's my observation, and the, the pollution figures apparently don't tell a lie. They say, well, you know, it's kind of obvious. You clear all those cars off the street in the centre of town, and there's less pollution. You put them back, and it goes back to where it was. But even the taxi boys are saying it's just as bad as it was. I mean, you know, for that, oh, yeah. for that oh, yeah. period those, of time. I, yes, my heart does go out to <laughs> all those taxi drivers who had to charge extra fares during the period of occupation. Yes, I'm... I'm my my personal apology to you and all. Is it because everybody's got novelty value of being able to drive through Admiralty again? And <laughs> you think seeing, they're all I don't, know, I don't it. know what it's going... It just I drove seems... through there the other day, and um, uh, what is extraordinary is you got so used to um, taking another route that I almost instinctively took another route, and then yeah. I realised that the road was open, so I could just, just carry on where, where, where I was going. But, you know, it's... 
It's Hong Kong. As far as it's Hong Kong, it's not many roads and a lot of cars trying to use them. It's as simple as that. The knock-on effect, it's not quite a catastrophe that was in that daft video. But, you know, the knock-on effect in Hong Kong is amazing. You get a jam in one road in the right place, it goes all the way round. It sure does. And, And what annoys the hell out of me, and it's not just me, is when two cars have a prang in a road in Hong Kong... It's never thought a good idea to move to the side of the road. You just keep them there and wait for a mile-long traffic jam to build up. Whilst extorting 500 off the other bloke. What is all that about? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing people moaned about, because I was talking with Merrin Pierce about this apparent 83% increase in air pollution. It stands to reason the cars go back on the road. That was because of Occupy Central. That was because of Occupy Central. Um, But all sorts of issues have come up here. Double parking, this, that and the other. And frankly, it really does jam the place up. Yeah. All the big boys off to meetings and their drivers twiddling their thumbs. No, but they are entitled to. They have very big cars. Yes. there is. I, I don't know if you've seen the basic law and you've seen Article 622. I heard about that one. But it does say that big cars with big drivers are exempt from other provisions of the of the transport ordinance. I think that's quite clear. I don't know why you don't know that. Yeah, I do now. Well, thanks. No, <laughs> I just, I've, I've clarified that, have I? It's time to get some cracks in the pavement stuff done on Morning Brew because, I mean, that really does irk people, stuff like this. Well, of course it does. Of course it does. And... <laughs> Well, you know, they're, they're, they're extending the MTR in a westerly direction, and that's all about to open. And I heard a chap on the radio, so if it was on RTHK, so it must be true. You bet. Saying, oh, no, this won't increase the congestion on the MTR because they'll all be going in, in a westerly direction. So I'm thinking, now, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you work, and I give just an example at random, in Causeway Bay, and you want to go home to Pot Fulham, you will somehow not pass Admiralty, Watch Giant Central, because you're going in a westerly direction. Yeah. I, I don't know, who are these great minds who plan these things? Oh, and then, of course, we've got what you call the road to nowhere, which is really growing at an astronomical rate now along the seafront. Yes, yes. This is the marvellous bridge that nobody will be able to use to go to Juhai. Uh, I'm planning myself not to use it, not to go to Juhai ever. Yeah. There's two negatives somewhere in there. Anyway, uh, t- nearly time to wrap up. What do you want to leave us with today? Well, I just, just um, in case anybody's forgotten, what happened to the investigation into um, Li Wei uh, <laughs> Chung Ying's um, illegal structures? Don't know. What happened to... Where's the, where's the Don? Where's the Don? What happened... I was just going to come on to that. <laughs> okay. What happened to the investigation into the, the number two chief executive, Donald Chung? What happened to the non-investigation into the mysterious $50 million that Li Wai Chung occurred, um, managed to secure, that's US dollars, from a Australian company? I just mentioned these things because... They were all there, and they all have an extraordinary habit of going up in the ether somewhere. 